Simply Stogies is a passion project that is fan-funded. If you enjoy the content Simply Stogies brings to you and would like to see more and different kinds of content, a website, more on-location podcasts with blenders, manufacturers, or retailers, or video reviews, please consider supporting Simply Stogies on Patreon at patreon.com slash simplystogies. Supporting Simply Stogies can get you a ton of perks, including instant access to bonus material, access to Simply Stogies Discord, including a Patreon-only channel, shoutouts on the show and social media, a monthly virtual herf with myself and other supporters, the ability to suggest cigar reviews, cool swag, or the opportunity to do a cigar review on Simply Stogies Podcast. Thank you for your consideration and your generosity. Now, on to Simply Stogies. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. Today, we have with us John Huber from Crowned Heads Cigars. John, welcome to Simply Stogies, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to join us for this AMA and interview. James, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for taking time out of yours and everybody else that's on here. Does anybody work for a living anymore? I'm like, this is what I do, so I'm like, I have an excuse to do this, but you guys are like, <laughs> man. Uh, this this is what I do. <laughs> this is it. I love and it. And I don't, I don't think the bums over at simplystogies.club work at all. Ever. Okay. More power to you, man. Love you. So this podcast is really about my cigar journey. And so when I have someone on, I want to find out how their cigar journey began. Can you tell me a little bit about yours? How much time do we have? Basically, my, my whole thing started off in the, I'd say, mid-90s, uh, I'd say probably 94, 95. Um, I can't remember specifically, but what was my situation was I was kind of like this whole midlife crisis where I, I wanted to find something that I was passionate about to do. Um, did a lot of soul searching, a lot of questioning myself, like what I, what really kind of, you know, pumps my blood kind of thing. And I, I, I really narrowed it down to a couple of different things. And the, the one thing that they all had in common was that they were naturally made products. I didn't want to be, you know, crunching numbers. I didn't want to be working with anything machine made, this, that, and the other. At the same time, I was going back to California um, to visit my father and I needed a guy's gift for him and I had no idea. And I literally was on my way to the airport. I see this cigar store called Uptown Smoke Shop in Green Hills. I pull over. I'm like, that's got to be a great gift. I walk into the humidor and the smell of the cedar and the tobacco, it was like one of those bing, like light bulb moments. It was just like, I, that's, I knew at that moment in that time, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that's, that was the start of my, my cigar journey. From that point forward, I came back to Nashville, bought a magazine called Cigar Aficionado with George Burns on the cover and started reading it front to back, uh, educating myself about cigars, buying a couple of two, three cigars every week, whatever I could save my money up for, labeling the cigars, evaluating the cigars, making tasting notes, geeking out completely. And then the next step was contacting everybody in that magazine, writing letters. I mean, you know, this was before technology when we had like, you know, before you had like emails, text, Instagram, what have you. So I did the old school way. I would write out letters and send letters and, and got pretty much rejected by every single person that would respond to me. To the point, in fact, that I tried to get a job at that store at Uptown Smoke Shop. And uh, for like six bucks an hour as a retail clerk, they wouldn't hire me. So I literally couldn't get arrested. And the very last ad in that magazine was a company called CAO International on Kendall Drive in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's where I got my start. Wow. That is, that, that's quite the start right there. Told you it would take some time. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. But the questions that I have for you are, do you remember what cigar you bought your dad? 
And do you remember the first cigar that you smoked? So the guy, um, the guy that was working at Uptowns at the time, he said, let me give you this Dominican selection or something. And like, I didn't know. I mean, there was all these facings. I had not a clue what I was doing. And I remember buying Griffins. Um, now, whether they were from the DR or not, I don't know. Because he just sold me on this, this pitch. Griffins, uh, some Macanudos, um, some mild stuff. And I remember uh, saving up money to buy an Avo number two, which was, I think, six by 50 ring. And that, that, those were like $5.60 at the time. And I thought that was all the money in the world. I'm like, oh, my God, I just bought a $6 cigar. You know, I'm going to smoke this thing. But, um, yeah, I guess probably my first cigar I smoked might have been either a Macanudo or a Griffin. I think it was a Macanudo Hyde Park. Okay, that sounds that seems pretty in line with what a lot of people start with. Quite honestly, it? that was my last Macanudo that I smoked, too, to be honest <laughs> with you. When you got started in this and you were email, I almost said emailing, when you were writing people, because I remember those days, too, when you had to write those letters out. On a out. word processor, dude. Oh, man. Oh, man. I used to have one of those, too. So you're writing this out and you're typing this out on a word processor, printing them off, sending them off, and you keep getting rejected and you keep getting rejected. How did you keep your head up during that time period? I mean, I have, I think either I'm stupid and ignorant or I'm just like so focused and it's like, you can't stop me once I get on in a lane and I'm going, you're not going to keep me from my goal. And my whole goal was just get my foot in the door. And I had faith in it. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I was meant to do. I mean, I knew it. And then four months after I sent the last letter to CIO International, I got a call from a gentleman named John O'Osgener, rest in peace. And I had no idea who it was. And it was on my voicemail at my office where I was working. And um, I was like, who is this kind of thing? I had to play it over and over and listen to it. I was like, oh, this is the guy from CAO. So I went in, to, did an interview with him came back for a second interview and they were literally CAO at that time was literally just operating out of John's garage. He had a house in West Nashville where he had a wine cellar at the bottom of the house, very small, kept all the cigars there. We would literally drive somebody's pickup truck to the house, back to this little office they had just moved in. And we would literally pack all the boxes and we would ship everything by hand via UPS. And it was very much just the very start of CAO. And John said, um, I don't really have anything for you other than a shipping manager. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I was, are you kidding me? That's what I do best. You know, I'm like, I just sold my bill of goods. I just wanted, just give me a chance, please. Right. I said, I don't need a lot of money. Just pay me what I'm making now. And I, I, and I did it, man. I, I rolled through it. And um, literally within the first five months, I soon discovered I wasn't very good at logistics and shipping. Um, but in the interim, um, I just had it in my heart to promote the brand. And there was, I remember the defining moment for me was there was a radio station here. It was a rock format station in Nashville at the time called KDF, WKDF. And I heard a commercial when I was working out, I heard a commercial saying, Hey, you know, the, 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 we're going to have two tickets to a, a closed circuit prize fight. And then we're also going to include a box of cigars as the, as the prize. I'm like, ding, I'm like what box of cigars, right? So I pick up the phone, I call KDF, I say, hey, where are you guys getting your cigars from? We don't know, we just thought it'd be a cool gift to, to include with the tickets to the prize fight. I'm like, I'm your guy. Look, I got these cigars, CAO Presidente, some, they're worth $200 a box, I'll trade them out for you for some airtime, da 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 da, and it was that simple. Wow. I parlayed that into saying, hey, you guys need somebody to come in on you know once a week drive time and we'll talk about cigars, because this is when cigars are really popular, 96. And uh, so I did that. So I would literally go once a week to KDF from like 7.30 to like 8, and I would tape this show, and then I would go to work at CAO. And then after about four or five weeks of that, I came in with the cassette tape of all the shows on, and I played it for Jono in his office. And he's like, this is local? I'm like, yeah. He goes, this guy's very good. Who is this guy? I said, it's me. And he says, you are now the director of promotions and public relations. Wow. Goes, you just got a promotion. I was like, that's it. And he laughed, you know, to the day, you know, he passed. He used to say that I was the worst shipping manager ever. But um, that's, <laughs> that's really kind of how I got my, my cut my teeth in marketing, so to speak. And just, I just went for it. So it took you four to five months to realize that you were terrible at logistics. But how long did it take them to figure out that you were terrible at logistics? Probably four or five 
weeks, days, okay. you know, I mean, it was, we were all making it up as we went along, really, it was just, you know, that was a quite a ride, you know, CAO to start from literally like a basement and then in the course of like maybe less than 10 years, sell it to a huge conglomerate. And, you know, the Oscars made a lot of money. We're very successful and God bless them. You know? In your time there, what's the biggest takeaway? What's the biggest thing you learned about the industry from that very first job? Well, you know, cigars, it's, it's not like you answer a want that per se. And it, there's no school you can go to to learn about it. It's all on the job training, right? But I think the, the biggest thing that I learned, not just about cigars, but in life in general from Jono was he had a mantra that he said, he was always saying, make it happen. And by that meaning, like, you know, the only limitations you have are yourself holding yourself back. You can do anything, just whatever you can envision, you can do. And that's really, we all had that same mentality. And that's how what really built that company. For instance, um, Sopranos, I remember the Sopranos were a big thing on HBO at the time. And somebody in the office said, we should get our cigars on there. You know, they're smoking cigars. John said, make it happen. And that was my task to get the cigar on HBO, which eventually once I did that, and then we were able to parlay that as a deal, a licensing opportunity with HBO to do, H, you know, CAO The Sopranos. So, I mean, I look back at that and that was all a pretty tall order. And it would have been easy to say, oh, there's no way that could ever happen to us. We're just this little company. But we just had blinders on man, and we just like went for it. And I, that, that kind of philosophy, that mentality that you could do anything really impacted my life to this day. Wow. Can you, can you speak a little bit about like, what well, we talked about where you started? Let's talk about where you're at. Can we talk about how you started crown heads and how that came about? So, um, you know, it's 2010 now CAO actually sold to Henry Winterman's in 08. Um, of course, you know, that took us all by surprise. And then you know, we got the, the, the typical, we're not going to change anything. Everything's going to be the same speech. And that lasted for about maybe 10 months. Then we saw people coming into the office, like, in, you know, different people. We never recognized people from overseas. I'm like, what's going on here? So then we find out that STG is acquiring Henry Winterman. So the big fish swallows this fish, swallows this fish. And then they also own General Cigar Company. So the whole year of 2010 was pretty much a transition for all of us. We saw the writing on the wall. We knew what was going to happen. Um, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing. I knew I was going to stay in the cigar business. There was a lot of speculation. I had some offers. I had some opportunities. My boss at the time, who was the head of the marketing department, was a gentleman named Mike Condor, who is now my business partner. Um, he just kind of gave me a subtle like wink, like, hey, you know, when this is when the smoke settles and you know everything kind of the dust settles, what have you you want to do something? I said, absolutely. I'm in. And that was about, that's about as formalized <laughs> as it got. Right. And then, um, my last day at, at CAO was December 17th, 2010, walked out the door and, um, December 21st is when we had our first meetings to discuss what would eventually become the announcement of crown heads in February of 11. So when you had that meeting, what was your vision? for crowned heads. Like when you first started, what was, what, what was it you wanted to accomplish? It wasn't so much like what I wanted to accomplish. I knew what I didn't want to do. And I was very adamant with Mike in saying that I do not want to create CAO 2.0. I want to do things completely differently. There's a lot of things that I, I wasn't on board with at the time. And he, to his credit, gave me that latitude and he says, okay. And it was really a matter of him and I spending, you know, a few days every week, putting white sheets of paper on the board and just kind of writing down, getting really just kind of coming down to core values. And what I learned from that exercise was two things. One, when you have your value system in place, your company philosophy, if you will, it becomes very easy that going forward, everything's got to adhere to that philosophy, to that value, set of values. Two, it defined that the message was going to be more important than the product. In other words, the message for me was, was carve your own path, literally. And I wanted to have a brand that was aspirational and inspirational for people, whether you're smoking cigars or not, to show them you can do anything. You can make it happen, so to speak. We're going to use cigars as the vehicle to deliver said message. And that's what that, that created. What was the philosophy? Can I ask that? Carve your own path. Carve your own path. So that's, 
came down to, you know, carve your own path. We were like, we're not going to do it like everybody else. We're going to do it our way. If everybody goes left, we're going to go right. If everybody goes right, we're going to go left. You know, we don't do things a lot. We do some things out of tradition, um, but we also do some things that are, that are different that kind of go against the grain. But again, I wanted people to be aspire to the brand. I want them to be inspired by the brand so that they can take that and say, Hey, if I want to start my own company, look at these two guys from Nashville, they're in the cigar business and, and they're doing it. Why can't I do it? Why can't I create something too? And that was always more important to me than, you know, just the cigar itself. That's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, so we love crowned heads around here at simply stogies and simply stogies.club. We love them. Uh, in fact, this month is crowned heads month. So it's kind of fortuitous that we're able to have you on for this AMA. I'll tell you why it's even more fortuitous is that I, I didn't even, I forgot about this, but a retailer, a good friend of mine um, sent me a text this morning. He says, it was eight years ago on this day that we sold your very first cigars at Uptown Smoke Shop, which is now Nashville Cigar. And they did today, November the 8th, 2011, were the very first cigars that were sold from uh, at Uptown's here in Nashville, Four Kicks. That's fantastic. That's awesome. That is anniversary wow. to all of us, right? This is this is this is great. Um, so one of our one of one of the the guys who founded uh, Simply Club, One World, he wants to know. He says that Crown Heads has a very good brand appeal, and you guys make great cigars. So where do you get your artistic inspiration from? Well, first of all, to clarify, we don't make anything. I always do this. I put the asterisk and the caveat that we don't make anything, right? It's the, the people that we're aligned with, the Garcias, the Carrillos, the, the Drew Estates, the Tobacco Lara Pichardo people. These are some of the most talented, uh, best scientists in the industry. That That's how we are successful. And I give them all the credit for building the product. Yes, we validate the product. Yes, we have the vision, the marketing, the idea. We taste the blend, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, I'm not making anything. I'm not sitting here rolling cigars, you know, and all that. But and you're, you're as good as, as the people you work with. And we've been very fortunate in that, you know, to work with Ernesto Perez Carrillo, who's literally in the Hall of Fame at Cigar Aficionado Magazine. He had Cigar of the Year last year. Um, to be able to get him on my phone and just to talk to that guy is like, a, you know, pinch me, I'm dreaming kind of a thing. And then the next step in that was to work with the Garcias, you know, Pepin and Jaime and, Yanni and all the people, my father's cigars to have them in, in, in partnership with us. And then, you know, Drew Estate. I mean, my God, you know, one of the biggest, craziest brands in the world in our business. And then now recently we started Juarez uh, with Tobacco Lara Pichardo, which is the complete antithesis, a very small, small factory, but doing great work. So I'd like to tip my hat and give all the credit to those people where I get my inspiration from wide open. It, it's all across the board, man. It could be sonically from music. It could be lyrically from music. It could be artwork. It could be film. It could be anything. It's just, I, I kind of feel like inspiration is one of those things where you just kind of leave the door open and it's going to come in. But when, when you're closed off and you're really trying to fit everything in a box, um, you know, then it, it, it doesn't work. You can't force it. Right. Okay. So then like, it comes from everywhere in every aspect of your life. And, and I can respect that. So One World has a great follow-up to this, which is out of all of your travels, whether it's for business or pleasure, is there a country or a culture that's captivated you most and, and has helped inspire you? Well, you know, you'd have to start with Central America, um, you know, Dominican, uh, Nicaragua. I mean, especially, I really enjoy going to Esteli. Um, just there's something about that town that's very special to me. So I draw inspiration from that, from the culture there, from the people there. Uh, Dominican as well. I mean, I would even go so far as to say uh, Hawaii as well. I love the culture of Hawaii. I love the mentality of Hawaii, the lifestyle, the the connection to the water, to nature in general. I mean, all those things inspire me, you know, culturally for sure. So you, you brought up music. You said sonically, lyrically, like musically, like that's a big, that can be a big influence for you. And I know that, I mean, you have somewhat like a Headley Grange. How did that can I ask the story about how Headley Grange came about? Uh, so we had had Four Kicks out, and Four Kicks was inspired by a Kings of Leon song called Four Kicks, which that was just something that I'd been just playing over and over again at CAO, and it was a very 
if anybody's familiar with the song, it's 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 a very uh, rebellious, heavy, like kind of like you know, you get your take your guns here. We'll get our guns from the south, and we'll. And it was my my big middle finger in the air to corporate America and General Cigar in particular. Um, that's just the mindset I was in. But anyway, fast forward. I'd been listening to a song by Led Zeppelin called When the Levee Breaks. And not specifically just the song, but the, the, for some reason, the intro, the drums had really caught my attention. And I would literally play this first six seconds of this song. It was Bonham's drums. It was like, boom, boom, boom. And it had this heavy, thick, I couldn't get out of my head, man. Like, and I was driving everybody in the office crazy. Like I had just been playing this over and over and over and I couldn't get out of my head. And like, what does this mean? And I finally said, I want to make a cigar that tastes the way these drums sound. I want it to be thick. I want it to be heavy. I want it to be just like chewy. And, you know, and I, I didn't have any other way to explain it other than sonically. So I, I tell Mike Condor this and he tells me, you're, you're, you know, you're crazy. This is stupid. It's never going to work. I said, let's just call Ernie put Ernie on the speakerphone and uh, you know, I said, Hey, Padrino, I said, I got something for you. And I said, listen to this. And I played it a couple of times, you know, this, uh, and then I said, he goes, yeah. I said, well, I want to make a cigar that tastes the way those drums sound. And that's all I said. And it was like a pause. And then he was like, I get it. I was like, boom. And Connor's looking at me like, how the, fuck, what the hell just happened here? <laughs> Um, so it was pretty funny actually, but yeah, that was the, the inspiration. And so then we started to work on the actual blend and it was a lot of back and forth, back and forth. And then I remember being in, in Ernie's SUV in the DR, leaving lunch, headed back to the factory and he said, try this. And I tasted it and I was just like, it was the aha moment. I was like, this is it. This is what, what, what I've been looking for. That became Headley Grange. But at that time it didn't have a name per se. And I'm like, I'm not going to name it. Bonham or when the levee breaks it just, I wanted it to be a little bit more abstract so I did I went home and I did a little bit of research and I, I discovered I saw this movie actually it was called um it might get loud it's a documentary with the edge Jack White and Jimmy Page and there's it's a very good movie and um there's one scene in there where Jimmy Page goes back to this house where those drums were recorded and I was like watching I was like oh what's this all about and he says the reason he, this is his story. I don't know if it's true or not, but he says because of the acoustics of the room where it was recorded, it was this big old house, this old poor house in, in England. He goes, that's what made the drums sound the way they sounded when they recorded it. And I don't know if that's fact or fiction, but that was his, his take on it. That house was called Headley Grange. Oh, wow. So that's, that's how we backed into that, that name for the brand. And, in fact, if you look at a box of Headley Grange, there's a small illustration in the crest of a house, and that's a, the artist's rendering of the actual house, Headley Grange. Wow. That's actually pretty cool. You put that like little Easter egg on, on there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun, man. It was really fun. Uh, Jay Voorhees uh, wants to know, like, what's your favorite Johnny Cash song? Because I have a feeling this is tied into maybe a couple of other uh, cigars you've got. Man, that's a, that's a tough one. There's a lot of songs that uh, that that really get to me from Cash. I mean, everything from his early stuff to all the way to when he did that thing with Rick Rubin and he, he re-recorded Hurt and it just like kills me. I can't even watch that video. I get like all choked up. Um, it I can't pick one, man. It's like Cocaine Blues was on Folsom Prison Live was the the jumping off point for Jericho Hill certainly. But I mean, there's so many good songs that he's done. And I remember even being a kid, my mom would play Johnny Cash on an LP in, in the, the, you know, what do you call it? The record player thing when I was a little kid. And I remember the boy named Sue and all this stuff. And I'm oh, like, yeah. who is this guy? You know, and I don't know. There was always something that just kind of drew me to his, his spirit more or less. And an odd story, really odd story is that, um, now, there's you can't see it, but there's a huge four foot by six foot render a picture, a photograph, black and white, Johnny Cash about a year before he died. It's in my office. A photographer friend shot it, and it's he's sitting in his chair outside of the house that burnt down here in, in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And when he gifted us that that portrait, I was I just didn't really you know I didn't have any idea the backstory to it. Today I now live eight miles away from where that was shot. So it's just a wow. weird kind of thing, how everything kind of circles around, you know? So you, you brought up Jericho Hill 
and cocaine blues. What about Juarez? Is Juarez Juarez is, of- Yeah, Juarez is, is tied back to that as well. Um, they overtook me down in Juarez, Mexico. It's from the, the lyric. The whole I got so much inspiration from just reading the lyrics in that song. So Juarez ties back to that. And but Juarez is a whole different story in terms of what the brand development was and, and all that good stuff. Um, originally, now I'm going to go off on a tangent if you don't mind, but absolutely. Juarez in particular started off, I was working on a blend for Germany. We have a distributor in Germany that's done very well for us. And he's been asking me for the last couple of years to do an exclusive for them, the way like Romocraft does with Wanderlust. And so I sent him a few blends here and there, and he kind of rejected everything. I was like, what do you want? He says, I want something dark. I want something heavier. I want something like your Jericho Hill. I said, okay. So I'd been behind the scenes working with another factory, Tobacco Larry Chardo. They'd been feeding me samples of stuff that they were doing that I was very impressed with. And I said, I, I got something for you. So we started working on this. And I had the blend down, and it was it was a riff off of, of the Jericho Hill blend. I sent it to the German distributor. I thought for sure it's a slam dunk. And he sends me back, no, this isn't right. We don't like it. I'm like, okay, all right. So I'm going to put that, table that. You guys forget you guys for a little while. Um, End of 2018, Mike Conner comes to me and he says, we have an opportunity with Thompson Cigar Company. They wanted a catalog exclusive. Do you have anything in mind? I said, well, I got this blend. I've been working on for Germany. They passed on it. I think it's really, really good. And it's a San Andreas wrapper. It's kind of a riff on Jericho Hill. We can kind of sell it off as like a, a cost value cost version of Jericho and we'll, we'll give it to Thompson. Okay, fine. So that was the impetus of Juarez. So they got a hold of it and did nothing with it. I mean, it just probably collected dust in a warehouse, right? And just like, you know, they get it in October of 18, November, December. There's no marketing. There's no nothing, nothing on it. I'm like, God, this is really pissing me off because I know this is a really good cigar. And um, now we're, it's, we're about six, eight months into it. We're about going to IPCPR, which is now PCA. Right. And we're going to launch La Coalition. I said, you know what? Let's, let's take Juarez over there. And Mike's like, why? I said, well, they're not doing anything with it. Cigars International now had acquired Thompson. So now it's really collecting dust and it's buried somewhere. I said, let's, you know what? We didn't sign a contract, nothing. We gave them a run six to eight months. They've done nothing with it. Uh, this thing is too good. I have a lot of faith in it. He's like, well, we have no marketing collateral. We've got nothing. I said, just take, take some samples, take some boxes. We'll hand them out. And that's what we did at the trade show this past summer. I just had the guys hand the cigar to somebody, let them smoke it, get the feedback and then say, okay, barrier of entry is five ninety five. And it was just like, what? This cigar is too good to sell for five ninety five, you know? And it's just taken off like crazy since then. So it's, it's knock on wood. It, it you know, two people kind of like shined on it, like Germany passed on it and, you know, in, in absenteeism, I guess, Cigars International and, and Thompson passed on it. And um, so now we're selling it and it's doing extremely well. Nice. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So we, we talked a little bit about what, what inspires you and, and part, part of my cigar journey is, is my family and that inspires me. How does family fit in for you? in in when it relates to cigars certainly i mean for me family comes first um i put my family i mean they're the reason why i do this you know and and my wife kind of gives me a little bit of ribbing and says you know you'd be doing this whether you were married to me and we we had a family or not i said yeah i would but you guys give me a reason to do it there's a whole difference you know so you know that it's family is everything to me they're the main reason why I've decided to do things differently. Like I could, our, our company would probably be a lot further along, like financially and, and, and developmentally. Um, if I was going out and doing, you know, in-store events, if I was in magazine ads, if I was doing all this push that traditional cigar companies tend to do. But from the very start, I just chose not to do that. I wasn't going to put that ahead of my family. I don't want to miss stuff with my kids. I don't want to miss stuff with my wife. I want to be able to spend as much time with them as possible. And then everything else is secondary. So I, I'm very devoted to my family. Um, like I, you know, I just, this doesn't get in the way of my family, put it that way. I mean, I, when I'm here, I'm focused on this. Right. Like there's, there's that, that work-life balance for sure. What's important is the legacy you leave behind with your loved ones. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so when we talk about legacy, I mean, what's like Jay Vuries wants to know, uh, what is your, what, what cigar you're most proud of? Hmm. God, dude, it's just like saying, let me ask you what, you know, who you guys have multiple kids. Who's your favorite kid? You, you, right. You can't, there's just no, it's an impossible thing. You know, it's impossible. Um, each one has a special place, you know, they all have a special place. Um, impossible to answer that question. I mean, I'm smoking a four kicks right now and it's like, I feel like that was the one that that'll always be sentimentally to me. Like very, I remember everything about picking the tobaccos with Ernie. I remember going to grad school with Ernie and learning how to really, you know, validate tobaccos and how to get a sense of their strength. Um, just all these things that I learned from him in the course of making four kicks, because he's from the very start, Ernie said, you know, look, I will make this for you, but, you're going to have to, this is you. And if it fails, it's on you. If it succeeds, it's on you. And that, he was very clear about that. So that, that one holds a special place, but you know, I'm looking at a, a sign right now for Las Calaveras and I'm like, well, shit, you know, Las Calaveras really kind of put crown heads on the map in 2014. It really did. So I have a special attachment to Las Calaveras. So, you know, and, and now I'm excited to get La Coalition out because it's, you know, it's something I've been, literally pouring my heart into for over a year and uh you know it's just it's an on, ongoing process i just appreciate the the evolution of of the creativity and being able to create you know new stuff that, that's what gets me going so let's talk about I, I mean you mentioned two cigars here i want to talk about both of them uh real quick Los calaveras one world uh he wants to know the story behind that and its artwork like how did that come about how did you how, how did like what's that story I'd always had this idea that I wanted to do um, a cigar that was not necessarily morbid or, you know, a lot of people call it the day of the dead cigar. It's really not the right thing. Um, I always wanted to do something as an homage to people that we've lost in a celebration of their lives. And I was in an airport um, with my wife. I think we were coming back from Mexico and I saw that Calavera Katrina, that original, I can't remember the artist's name, but I saw it. I was like, there's something about that. And I went home and I researched it and, I saw Las Calaveras, the skulls. I started to think this would be a cool way of doing what I wanted to do, which was do an annual release that pays tribute to the people we lost in the prior year. And that's how the whole thing kind of got started. And then, you know, graphically, we worked with a graphic artist and I said, this is the vibe I'm looking for. Um, you know, we came up with the basic skull. I mean, I mean, I didn't invent the sugar skull, obviously. So it's like, it was a play on that. And then one thing that a lot of people don't know is like on the, the gold coins on the side of the band, um, those initials that you see on those, they're, they're different every single year because they, they pay tribute to people that we lost the prior year. So you'll see those, those coins change on every release from 14 all the way up through 19. Wow. So you, so that's just another Easter egg that you're putting on the bands or on the box. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of Easter eggs in our stuff. <laughs> how much, how many more do you have? A lot. A lot. Does every brand or every every line have something that you've, you know, hidden in there? For instance, uh, so I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is a, a Juarez, right? So my my Texas salesman calls me up and he says, uh, "What are the, the the five? What's the tally marks on the on the bull for?" I said, "Well, they're the same tally marks that are in on the band of this, the shield in Jericho Hill." And he's like, "Well, what does that all mean?" I said, "That was representative of like if you're in jail." Right, you're gonna mark off your days one, two, three, four, five, and that was the the tie back to being incarcerated, and that's the tie back from Juarez back to Jericho Hill. Uh, I'm looking at a box of Tennessee Waltz. There's three stars on that box, very subtly. It just looks like a design embellishment, but it's actually the three stars from the, the Tennessee state flag. Um, what else? Man? There's on the box of four kicks. You'll see a compass, north, west, east and south but the s is slightly bigger and that's a reflection to the lyric where it says we'll get our guns from the south so that's there's there's a ton of that kind of stuff i got wow. bored with tears man but no that's not boring at all that's interesting stuff 90, you know 90 percent of that stuff means something to me but it never really get the story doesn't get told as well as you know by the time i tell this guy to tell this guy to tell this guy then he's like oh yeah there's a compass on the box i don't know what that is but it's just <laughs> I guess is in case you get lost, you can find whatever, you know, so, but yeah. You know where South is because it's a little bit bigger. Right. 
No, but that's great because this is where you're pulling inspiration from. This is like for you as an artist, this is you expressing yourself. And it's fantastic to get these little tidbits that we might not always get because like you said, you know, it gets filtered down. You tell the story, somebody else tells a story. So this is this is great. I love it. Um, I think it's always like it's it's kind of um, everything has to have a I believe that things are more relevant if they have a reason to exist. I mean, a lot of people I've read stuff, make people made comments that I think were slightly geared towards me, like just make a good cigar. Don't who gives a shit about the story, man? It's just a cigar, you know. I, I disagree. I think that I, it makes it more interesting that it exists for a reason. That that star is on there for a reason. That those tally marks are exist for a reason. So I, I think people that just say, "Oh, just make a cigar and whatever," you know, that's that's lazy to me, man. No, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, real quick on Last Calaveras, I know it's going to be like asking you to pick what kid, but Enrich uh, wants to know which Last Calaveras release is your favorite. Well, the 14 put us on the map, but I think that the 2015 flew completely under the radar. To this, to the, and I'll tell you why. Because 14, we released 72,000 cigars total. And it just took off like gangbusters. It was, I don't know what the, the tipping point was, but we just, it, I was like, what the hell? So I was like, all right, we got to follow this up. So the task was, how do you create something different, but hopefully a notch better? And so I went over the blend with, with Jaime. And I remember flying down there and getting in the truck at the Managua airport. And Yosef hands me a cigar and it was beautiful. It was a Robusto and it was just gorgeous. And I was like, you'll smoke this. And I was like, what is it? He goes, that's your 2015 Calaveras. And the second I lit it up, I'm like, this is fucking unreal. It's phenomenal. I'm like, I was blown away. And I just looked at him. I said, I think this is better than last year. He's like, yeah. He goes, Jaime said the same thing. Jaime said, this is better than last year. I'll never forget that. And I really thought it was better. And to this day, I think it was better than the 14. I thought the 14 was good, meaty, but more or less one dimensional. Um, but the 15 was like a cigar smoker cigar. It was complex. It was balanced. It still had strength. Um, I loved that cigar. And when we released it, everybody was like, eh, it's not as good as last year. You know, I was like, oh, fuck, really? And I, I learned, my, the lesson I learned from that was I think that our audience in particular t- tends to smoke with their eyes. They gravitate towards darker, heavier things, thinking it's going to be more robust and more heavy and have more balls to it when it's dark. It's got to be dark and oily and heavy. And, blah, blah, blah. and I just, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, and I, I, I thought the 15 was better than the 14. So, and I, then I would probably go 15, then I would go 19 second. I think 19 is like 14 with more balance and finesse and complexity. Nice. Nice. So I want to go back to uh, La Coalition uh, that you, that you've done. Um, LSU Piper wants to know more about that. And, and specifically, like, can you tell us how you approach that cigar and how you approach that literally that, that collaboration? So, I've known John, Jonathan Drew, since we, I mean, we both started pretty much the same time in the business, like 95, six, something like that. We always had a good banter, friendship, whatever, mutual admiration. And then I remember when they hired Willie Herrera from El Titan, the bronze back in, I want to say 13, something like that. Um, John sent me a box of the original Herrera Esteli and I opened it and I was just like, wow wow, 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 this guy speaks my language, this Willie Herrera guy. This is how it's done, man. And I, the, the presentation, the packaging, the cigar, the, the aroma, the flavor, the, the batolas he chose, I'm like, this guy and I are simpatico. So we're at a trade show, like 13, 14, something like that. And John's like, hey, I want to get you and Willie together. We should do something. Let's get to do something. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Nothing ever really evolved of it. It just came to be this annual kind of a thing. But in the interim, Willie and I became good friends. He would come in through Nashville and do events. And he was like, hey, can I come by and smoke a cigar? Yeah, come on. So we started smoking cigars. And, you know, we'd talk about the family and the kids, this, that, and the other. And we just, we really hit it off. We were just like, we became fast friends. And I had a huge admiration for what he did. I liked his style. So about two years ago, the, the talks got a little bit more okay, let's do something. And literally like we had like a three and a half hour long meeting uh, with Drew. And it was just like the whole meeting was 
literally defining contract brand versus collaboration. And I was just like, I can't believe they're just really going at this, this deep contract versus, I'm like, what the hell? But now I get it. Now I understand why they did it because it's true. It's like, if you really wanted to do, I hate the word collab. Everybody's collab. Oh, this is the collab. This is a collab. Right. Fucking, it's collaboration. And the reason why it's a collaboration is when two parties contribute equally towards that end project, that becomes a collaboration. Contract brand would be if I went to John or Willie and said, can you make a cigar for crowned heads? And then we're going to take care of the rest of it from there. That's a contract brand. What we wanted to do going forward was truly a collaboration between Drew and crowned heads between Willie Herrera and John Huber. So once we defined that, then we had another meeting a year ago. And um, at that meeting is when we really started to get down to it. You know, we got the green light that, okay, we got the philosophy right, but now we got to get the product. And I remember sitting in a meeting with one of the marketing people at Drew Estate that is no longer there, but he said, okay, what we want to do is send you and Willie up to a cabin in Gatlinburg and let you guys just go like hole up somewhere and go fishing and, and smoke cigars and, and drink and da 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 And I was just like, I looked across the table at Willie. I'm like, dude, that sounds like Brokeback Mountain or something. I'm not into that. <laughs> I'm not, no offense. He's looked at me like, he's like, dude, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not down with that either. So no. So let's just, let's, let's just come up with the cigar and we'll figure out the rest. And so Willie looks across at me and he says, do you like Añejos? And I'm like, I'm in. And that was as quickly as it happened. I was, he's like, wow. good. And um, so he came home and, and he sent me some samples of stuff that he's been, had been tinkering around. Cause he likes to, he goes down to the factory like literally like at least once a month. And when he's down there, they just let him tinker with tobacco and he just comes up with blends and doing this, that, and the other. So the jumping off point was that flavor profile because I really liked Añejos. He was a big fan of the Fuente Añejo as well. And he sends me samples. I guess big box. And he says, I want you to smoke every Vitola, every size, and every sample within each Vitola. Okay. So he goes, call me when you've smoked everything. And I literally smoked everything. Wow. About three weeks later, he calls me, what would you think? And I said, well... Do you want to hit it over the left field fence, center field fence, or the right field fence? Because call your shot. They're all home runs. You, you knocked it out of the park, man. They're all fantastic. And he laughed, and he says, just pick one. What's the number that you pick? And I said, blah, 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 blah. He's like, that's the one I like, too. I'm like, bing. And that was it. That was literally wow. – that, that was the most fluid, <laughs> easy part of the process was, was getting the blend down. I mean, it was not rocket science. It was just we were both very much in the same – and then the next step was, all right, let's go over the Vitolas. And we just, we started like, okay, we need a 46. He's like, yeah, me too, man. It's my favorite size. I'm like, great. Do a Corona Gorda. And then we go up from there. Let's do a little And, you know, and it was just like, when he and I got together, it was just very easy. It's just like, boom, done. And then I was, I was tasked with the name. He's like, well, you got to come up with the name. And uh, that took a while because like, La Colación was one of the first names and he loved it. I said, let me keep trying. I kept trying and I sent him names that were a little bit more esoteric and weird and he hated them. And he's like, I still love La, La Coalition. I said, all right, well, that's it. Nice. And then from that point, I, I was very adamant that the artwork, the design, the cliche, the Vista had to start at least with, with Drew Estate Camp um, because I felt like if we did it, it would just look like another Crown Head cigar. So there was, you know, so there was a little bit of give and take there as well. Like Joey at, Drew started it and we took it, we massaged it. And so you're really, what you're going to get in a couple of weeks is truly a collaboration, not a contract brand. You're going to get what, if you took, the analogy I used was if you took Crown Heads, Drew Estate, Holy Herrera, John Huber, put them in a blender, hit liquefy and pour it out. This is what it's going to taste like because we, we all, there are all kinds of hands involved with this. That's fantastic. And it saved you an entire week uh, uh, from Brokeback Mountain. So so as an artist, how do you approach working with some of these different factories? Like I, I'm guessing each factory is a little bit different in how you approach what you're looking for and then what you know they bring to the table. How does that how does Yeah, that work they are very, very different. Um, some are more vertically integrated than others. Some, it's like putting a puzzle together. Um, what does that mean? In other words, like when I was doing stuff with the Garcias, you know, I, I came up with the, the, the we validate the blend the packaging the everything the only piece that they didn't produce was the bands 
I mean, they did, they had their own box factory. They have their own tobaccos for the most part. You know, everything is, is, you know, soup to nuts, except for the band. Working with TLA, Tobacco de la Alianza, for instance, with Ernie, it's like, you know, we do the, the stick with Ernie, but I've got to outsource the band and the box and the Vista. The, you know, so you've got a lot of moving parts with, with Ernie because he doesn't have his own box factory and stuff. So to Ernie's credit, you know, he's very open to doing stuff with us and very open to working together with us. Um, other factories are a little bit more jammed up. You don't really have the room to expand and grow. Um, they're a little bit more resistant to us doing new projects. Okay. So. Uh, relevant Dublin Hines wants to know how you approach limited editions. Like, so as an artist, when you look at these things and you look at what, what you're creating, you say, I want this one to be a limited edition or I want this one to be a limited edition. Like, what does that process look like for you? For me, it's uh, a lot of times I'll use limiteds to shine a light back on something that I feel is kind of forgotten. Like, for instance, uh, Headley Grange is a very good example. You know, Headley Grange as a brand isn't one of our primary movers because it's been out for, what, seven years now? Six, seven years? And people tend to forget. Um, and they don't, it's not really like, you know, it's got its pockets, but it's not that hot. But now, Last year, we do a cigar called Black Lab, which I take the original binder filler and I put a different wrapper on it and I close the foot. And all of a sudden, that's like everybody's raving about that cigar. And I'm just like, okay, at least we got a little bit more energy back onto uh, to Headley. So that that's part of it. Uh, Mule Kick's another one, kind of shine a light back to four kicks. Um, you know, we, we call Las Calaveras a limited edition and an edition limitada. And it, you know, it's kind of grown past that a little bit. It's limited in the sense that the, the, the blend and the Batolas change annually, but the production is so big every year that it's almost like a lot of companies our size would, would call that a good brand. You know, in other words, you know, like Las Calaveras this year, I think we did a hundred and close to 150,000 cigars. And yeah, they sold out in like a matter of a couple of months, but that's a pretty good brand performance on an annual for a lot of companies our size. So it's kind of, I'm almost kind of leery of calling that a limited edition, even though it really is because things change every year. Um, I have fun with limited editions as a whole. I think that the, the, the risk you, you, you run as a manufacturer, as a brand owner is kind of like, you know, jumping the shark. How much is too much? How much is too too gimmicky, too clever, too cheeky kind of thing. And I think I, I, I poke fun at that sometimes. I think, yeah, we, we've jumped the shark a couple of times for sure. You know, no question, but people want what's new, you know, that's, it's funny. So if you had to choose between like giving people what's new or like just continuing to make like, for example, you know, Henley Grange, like what would you rather do? Like as an artist, are you always looking for the new thing or are you, content with some of the things you've made and you don't, you know, I'm never, never content per se, but you know, you're asking me a question that I would have to change the entire scope of the industry because when I got into the industry, the, the, the mentality of the consumer, if you will, was a lot different than it is today. Back then you had brand loyalty in the sense that you really, you, you would have guys go into a cigar store and say, yeah, I'm, I'm here to buy my uh, H Upman, da, 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 da. I want one and I smoke a box a week and you can't get me off that brand. So you were vying to try to get that, right? Get that brand. Right. 20 years later, now it's like, you're just hoping to get into somebody's rotation, right? You want to get in with that, that, you know, what do you smoke? Well, I smoke Tatuaje, Illusion, Warped, Crowned Heads. That you're hoping to get into that rotation. It, there's very few brands that become like house brands these days because I call it a craft beer mentality. Uh, of today's cigar smoker in that they want what's what's new what nobody else is, is they want to discover the next i don't know anything right. beer dog what is it dogfish or dog head or something like that. i think yeah I, i'm not a big beer guy but i know which one you're talking about yeah. yeah you try this chocolate stout ipa from blah 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 blah. right everybody has that mentality so it's it's very difficult to to demand brand loyalty when everything's constantly being rotated you know i mean i remember having a conversation with steve saka a couple of years ago and he's like you know you want to make a brand that sticks like Liga Pravada was a brand that stuck for Drew 
But the more I thought about it, I'm like, that really doesn't happen that often anymore. What was the last brand that really stuck that became, you know, just stay there? You'd probably have to go back to before Liga Pravada, you'd go back to maybe Tatuaje Brown label, like in 2003. That was like the last one that stuck. Now it's, you know, I'm, Steve's still trying to get something to stick. I mean, we all are, but it's not going to happen because people just are from a different mentality. They shop differently now. So as an artist, is it hard to react to um, the, the ever-changing, you know, wants and needs of, a, of the consumer? Or because you're an artist, is it is it kind of easier to, to like, get the creative juices flowing? Oh, they're always flowing. <laughs> That's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard. It's, it's really just kind of, you know, I kind of equate it to, like, you know, taking a piece of, of art and putting it on the refrigerator. And if it still looks good two weeks later, when you come back and look at it, then you might have something. But sometimes you wake up with an idea that you thought was great. And a couple of days later, after the, 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 the cobwebs clear, you go, wow, what the hell was I thinking? I should, you know, right? So you, you yeah. kind of, you have to meter every little creative idea that, that pops into your head. You can't, you can't do them all. Um, and then we're also limited by availability of tobaccos as well. That's the other you know, you, I kind of say, well, you got to cook with what's in the pantry, right? right? Some of those ingredients aren't available. Maybe that you don't have broadleaf right now. Maybe we have to use Sumatra. Maybe we, so you, you're, you're limited to that. You know, it's not like, um, it's like if you're a painter and somebody said, Oh, you got to paint a painting, but, uh, the store sold out of black and blue. So you got to keep those colors out. Okay. What well, can I paint that doesn't have black and blue in it? Right. There is that to concern with as well. So I kind of want to switch gears here a little bit because I still want to, it still has to do with the industry, but One World wants to know your thoughts on the cigar media. Uh, I don't think he means like podcasts and that kind of thing. What he, he, he wants to know, do you care about like what media outlets say about your cigars? So do you care what cigar aficionado rates your cigars? You know, I'd be lying to say I didn't pay attention to that stuff. Well, no, I will tell you the, the absolute truth. I pay attention to the I'll do a Google search on all of our stuff every day and I'll see who's rated something or somebody has a review on YouTube. I like to see what the, the everyday guy says. Um, and there's plenty of YouTubers out there and, and I've, I pay attention to the half wheels, the cigar coops, the stogie reviews, these kind of guys. I will go on record as saying I do not pay attention to cigar aficionado. Um, you know, I, I just don't, I don't pay attention to it. Um, for me, I know how that game is played, so I don't put a lot of credence into it. Um, when a colleague is, is you know, um, like, for instance, when Ernie got Cigar of the Year, I was so happy for, for Ernie, genuinely happy for Ernie. Was the Majestic Encore the best cigar Ernesto Perez Creo has ever made? No, it wasn't. But it's almost become like a Lifetime Achievement Award for that magazine. It's like, okay, who is due? Is it Lido? Is it Carlito? Is it Padron? Is it Ernie? You know, you kind of start rolling the dice and go, well, Rocky should be due. Rocky probably needs a good rating, you know. I don't pay attention to Scarfish, you know. And not only that, they don't send me the magazine anymore. They used to put me on a comp list and I would get Insider. And, <laughs> and they, that, that ship sailed a couple years ago. I'm, I'm persona non grata up there, to be honest with you. So I really just don't, I don't, it's out of sight, out of mind with those guys. But I do pay attention to what the, like, the everyday guy kind of thinks of the cigars. It means more to me than than uh than the magazine does to be perfectly honest with you i mean well i think from an artist standpoint that's what you want right you're trying to connect with the consumer with the person who yeah. is consuming Absolutely. yeah so look i mean, mean that, it's just, that magazine in particular it's the way i made peace with it is this if i was in the magazine business i will take care of my customers right and my customers are the ones that are paying my bills so if you advertise with my magazine, I should take care of you. Just like if you buy my cigars, Tinderbox, I should take care of you. I should give you point of sales. I should give you marketing collateral. I should do events, what have you. Um, so I don't begrudge them. I just think that it should be a little bit more open and honest and don't say these are definitively in this box, the best 25 cigars in the world. Because nine times out of 10, there's a lot of other cigars that, that, that are probably you can make a good argument that probably better, but then they always fall back on this. Well, this is just our opinion. We're just saying, you know, we're just, no, you're not. No, you're not. Right. No. You're the, you the, the authority, it. right? Right. You tout it as being, this is the number one cigar of the year. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, I still have friends that work there. So I, I try to tread lightly because I don't want to upset anybody, but I, some years back I learned how the system actually works up there from somebody that used to work up there. That's all I'll say. Sure. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> all right. No, perfect. That's, that, that's perfect. I think that's, that's exactly what, what he was looking for. And that answers the question sufficiently. So we're, we're, we're talking about subjects that people sometimes, you know, walk on eggshells around and we, we tread lightly. We don't want to upset people. Do you mind talking about the FDA just a little bit from an artistic standpoint, from an artist's point of view? Um, the FDA is literally just trying to censor you as an artist. You know, what are your thoughts on that? How do you uh, kind of see the future of that going? How do you are you ready for it? Are you are you prepared for it? Are you ready to work around it and with it? Or are you, you know, like middle finger rebel, you know, you put Johnny Cash, like you're pushing back. Like, no, I you- mean, honestly, it's, it's hard to be, to sit here and say, we're ready for something that we don't even know what it is because nobody's a hundred percent sure what it is. Not even the FDA. I'm sure the FDA doesn't even know what it is. So the way I make my day about it is, you know, Mike, Mike Condor, my business partner, he is very well tied into all of the legislative stuff. He probably spends a good 60 to 70% of his work week actually on, on calls with PCA, AMAB, all these different boards. And so he, he goes to Washington at least once or twice a month. And he's, he was actually at the hearing with, uh, with Edney versus the FDA a couple weeks ago. So like he's, he's definitely a great resource in terms of he knows what's going on. He knows how we should prepare for the future, so on and so forth, probably better than most. Um, that said, it's like, I still try to keep my blinders on because it, when I remember in 2016, it was May the 5th. I was on my anniversary little getaway trip with my wife. And I saw the email about the FDA or the half wheel story about FDA re- deeming regulations announced. And it was like, I got gutted. I was just like, Oh my God, it's over. We're done. You know, that was three years ago. And the rest of that year, I think as an industry, we we're all just kind of like deer in the headlights. We just froze. Everybody just stopped. We didn't know what to do. We we're like, what the hell are we doing? You know, oh, now we got to get stuff in commerce. Now we have to do this. We have to focus on the next 10 years. We have to get all this stuff out on the shelf before August. And it was crazy. I remember it was crazy. And I just, I remember the lesson I learned was you can't get caught up in that because it just stifles any kind of creativity you have. And so as a result, 16 was a bad year for us. You know, we took our foot off the gas. We didn't know what we were doing. So did nobody. Um, we did get stuff, you know, in commerce through the help of some some big friends that in theory, if everything goes the way they say it's going to go, that we would have enough bullets in the gun to last another 10 or 12 years. But, you know, so much has changed since then even that we don't even know what's really going to happen. I mean, you know, there's going to be some regulation. I just don't know to what extent. I do know that, uh, you know, we're just, we're just going to keep forging ahead until otherwise. I mean, I just, I can't get, go down that rabbit hole too much because then I'll just, then we'll just be paralyzed, literally sure. paralyzed. And you'll, you, there won't be a business to have to worry about losing because you're just going to be done. So I, you know, Mike, and the short answer is Mike's the business mind. I'm the creative. He handles that. I trust him once in a while. I'll say, Hey, how did it go up with any, good things are looking good or no, we got this coming down at us. So we got to prepare for this or da, 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 da. Okay. So that's perfect. Like it, it, you can't get caught up in it. Like you said, cause like it just sucks the creativity out of everything. Like, what? Well, it stymied the whole business for a year in, in 16 and you know, things change on a daily basis with that. You know, I, I, I do think in my own naive way that, you know, prohibition, didn't work the first time they tried it in the twenties. It's not going to work. Now you can't deny somebody their individual right to purchase uh, an adult product. I mean, if if they want to raise the smoking age across the board of 21, fine. We don't market to, to kids. We don't, none of our advertising marketing, anything is directed towards youth. Vape is kind of like the, you know, fine. Separate them from us because that's not what we do. That's not, we don't do tangerine flavored cigars, you know? That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's such a difference between a premium hand rolled cigar and everything else. Absolutely. And not to mention, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, alcohol, totally unregulated for the most part. More people die every day from alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver, drunk driving. The, the list goes on, but they won't touch alcohol. 
right? But yet cigars, it's something that we choose individually to smoke and we know there's risks associated with it and we're okay with it. Put the warning label on it, do whatever you want to do, but don't deny me that right of making that choice. And it's going to be a far less health risk than, you know, drinking on a daily basis. Agreed. I, I think it's completely hypocritical, but I think it all comes down to money to be perfectly frank with you. I 100% agree with that as well. I think it is very much uh, Colorado. You smoke a joint, walk down the, this, you smoke weed all day, smoke a cigar. And I'm going to fine you $500 for smoking in the park, but here have a joint. You can smoke that because why we're going to tax that. And we're going to make a shitload of money off of, of, of weed, even though we don't know if there's health risks associated with inhaling marijuana, but it's okay. Cause we're making money. That's all that matters. The government's making money. Uh, <laughs> What do you think uh, the future of this industry, the cigar industry looks like? Like in 10, 15 years, you're looking down the road. What do you see? I hope to be doing what I'm doing right now. I really do. And I have faith that we will be. It may not look exactly the same. But hopefully it, it will be better. Um, I think that there's also going to be whatever happens in the future is going to happen with regulation. I think, you know, it, it has a way of cleansing itself. You know, maybe it kind of weeds out the, you know, the cream will rise to the crop. And I'd like to think that we're going to stick around. Um, in some way, shape or form. I would like to, you know, I'd like to have this business where I'm employing, you know, another 10 people or something and letting them live their best life. You know I mean? I, we've got four in-house guys now and to a person, if you ask them, how's it going? They're like, you know, this, I'm living my best life. It's great. I love it. This is, I get to travel. I get to meet people. I get to smoke cigars and you guys are paying my car allowance. You guys are paying my insurance and I'm getting, <laughs> making money doing this. That that's a gratifying feeling as a business owner. So, I mean, that's the best feeling you can have as a business business owner, isn't it? Like, it is. It is when you when people are enjoying what they're doing on a daily. There's nothing better. Um, it does come with some associated uh, pressure because now you're not just responsible for your family; you're responsible for numerous families, and it a lot you know comes on your shoulders. You know, it's like I had a I did an interview yesterday with another podcast, and I said, uh, you know, I my CAO days were more fun because I didn't have that, that pressure on me. All I had to do was just do the best job I could and I would get paid and not have to worry about making payroll or cash flow or insurance benefits or anything like that. I just knew it was going to be there. Right now. Yeah. I have some more creative latitude, which is great, but I also have a lot more pressure as well. So is that a good trade off for you though? Do you see that as a good trade off? Like I get to do like my creative juices can go wherever they want. I'm not complaining. I mean, okay. it's just, it's just pre there is pressure just like anything yeah. else but no pressure no dimes in the office and, that's right you know, and, and then i kind of settle down i go i'm blessed to be able to do what i do every day i love what i do so don't complain john just fucking suck it up and keep going i i got two more questions and they're they're related con man wants to know if you have any plans for a la, uh, la crema uh lancero or do you have any plans for any lancero this year yeah, i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> I don't. There's only two months left in the year, so no, there's no plans for Lancero. Lanceros are the most popular size that nobody buys, and that by that I mean you know it's it's a sexy thing, it's a cigar kind of source cigar, so to speak. But when you put it on the shelf, why don't you see a lot of regular production Lanceros? You see Robustos and Toros. Why don't you see Lanceros if they're so hot? Because people don't buy Lanceros. That's just the as a Nelly. Like drumstick, Headley Grange drumstick, we we could sell it out, but you know, it's just it as as, as there's just I don't know. I don't smoke them that often. I'll be honest with you, I just don't. No, I I have some. I don't, but you're right. I don't smoke They're them fun, all that often. But I just don't. They don't. I don't really. It's not something I smoke on a daily by any means. So I want to give you the opportunity, John, to, to really just promote whatever it is you want to promote. Is there a cigar that you've got out there right now that you really want people to give it a shot? Like what what is it that you you know, tell our listener what it is to go buy where they, you know, what you want them to taste. And when they're tasting that they're tasting, you know, crown heads are tasting John. Well, you know, the, the easy way out would be like, you know, let's talk about what's the newest stuff, which is coalition coming out. Juarez being out, you know, those are the, the sexiest new news kind of thing. But I mean, I just, I personally think there are so many cigars in our regular production portfolio that just get slept on that don't get the, 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 they fly under the radar. Um, and I can go from Luminosa to Le Carême to uh, Las Moreas to even La Imperiosa. You know, I mean, some of these cigars, they're like, I go back and I go, man, this, this checked all the boxes. 
flavor profile, name, history, story, packaging, sizes, but it's not selling. It's, it's, we're, we're down 10% with it or whatever. So, I mean, there's something, I can honestly say that there's something from mild to medium to full body, what have you in our portfolio that would, would, I would put it up against with anybody's stuff, you know, that luminosa is a great example. You know, I just, I was like, fuck man. It's like, this is like a great mild, mild to medium cigar with a little bit of character to it. Great with coffee in the morning. I can't get people to smoke it. You know, I mean, try it, check it out. It's not, it's, it's a great cigar. I was like, I smoked a side by side with some other Connecticut's that do get the accolades. And I'm like, this is every bit as good as that cigar, if not better. And yes, it's, it's, you know, I just go out there and I, I, I pick anything, pick one, and you're not going to be disappointed. I, I have that much confidence in everything we've done. It wouldn't be on the shelf if it was, if it was a dog. Put it that no, way. No, for sure. Everybody go go uh, try a Crown Heads. Uh, John Hooper, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, this, that'll end the uh, podcast portion of this, and we're going to open this up to the members of simplystogies.club if you'd like to be a member of simplystogies.club. Uh, send me a message uh, at uh, info at simplystogies.com. Uh, or uh, on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast or at Simply Stogies. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies.